0: The podcast, Lance. I appreciate you taking out the time to talk to me today. If you just want to start off, we'll start off a little hot and heavy and uh, get a little background on who you are and what you what you do for a living.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Gavin. I appreciate it. Um, I uh, basically am uh, a professional, full time professional white-tailed deer and wild turkey photographer. Uh, those are my two specialties. Um, I've been shooting photos of whitetails and, uh, wildlife in general since 1985, uh, back when I was 16 years old. Um, That's so I've lot. been shooting, uh, photos for over 35 years and, um, just basically photographed the three things that I enjoy doing the most, which is, uh, chasing after whitetails, turkeys, and bass fishing, which is uh, another one of my passions. And, uh, I do a lot of photos of guys hunting, um with bows, guns, muzzle loaders whatever and turkey hunting and guys bass fishing and um I used to do a lot more variety of stuff but as I progressed in my photography career I uh kind of started going to the things that I enjoyed doing the most uh which is you know white tails turkeys and and fishing so anyway so I've been doing it for a lot of years I've been doing it full time professional I started Uh, I sold my first photo I started shooting photos at 16 sold my first photo at 19 years old and uh, after photographing for three years and then um, went part-time professional at 21 while I was still going through college putting myself through a a marketing uh, business marketing degree and uh, then I graduated at 24 even though I was you know paying my own way through college and uh, paying for my apartment and all the, all the expenses with that um, out of my parents' house um, after 21. Um, I started, uh, I graduated at, at 24 years old. It took me seven years because I was having to pay for everything myself, having to pay semester by semester. And so then I started uh, going what I consider full-time, even though I was really full-time before, probably by the age of 22 or so. But um, anyway, I, uh, the day after I graduated from college uh, in December of, uh, what was that, 1994 or 93, something like that, um, I uh, flew out on assignment for a magazine out to Montana to photograph mule deer for a magazine. And basically I've been traveling all over the United States ever since, you know, selling my photos to the big national magazines like uh, Field and Stream, Outdoor Life, um deer and deer hunting you know north american okay. whitetail all the all the different hunting magazines yeah i was wondering if
0: that too you were selling to. that's yeah that's super awesome man and you it sounds like your first like uh job you got when you went to shoot those uh muleys with the camera that was the year i was born so you've been doing it as long as i've been
1: alive years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah exactly been been, been a while uh, though you're a young guy uh for a photography career that's uh, quite a long time yeah, and
0: one reason I wanted to get you on here, because that was actually what I wanted to do for my career until I was probably about 16, and then I ended up moving down here to Indiana, and me and my photography teacher, we just did not meet eye-to-eye. I was just, he was just wasn't my type of teacher, so I kind no, of fell out of it. Yeah, but I mean, I still do it. I still take pictures and stuff, and I'm doing the white tail Bloodline now, but like, I grew up watching, I'm sure you've seen it, you're an animal photographer, like uh, Wild America, the movie with, about uh, Marty Stauffer. Oh, yeah. I used to watch him when I was a kid, too. Yeah. I can say, I've i seen that movie hundreds of times. Love that movie. And just, yeah, I used to do the same thing. Go out and always had a camera in my hands. Used to do the old style like you did, I'm sure, with uh, the non-digital with actual film and stuff.
1: Yep. Yeah. My first camera was an old Canon AE1 program camera with a. instead of buying the 50 millimeter, quote, normal lens that, you know, you're supposed to buy with a camera. I bought the body only and a 100 to 300 uh, millimeter uh, Canon zoom lens specifically to photograph wildlife. And so I didn't start out like the normal photographer. I, I had 100 uh, percent in my mind that I wanted to you know shoot wildlife. And that was what my love and passion was from the beginning. OK, so did you grow up hunting and like fishing, I'm guessing? Yeah, um, I, I fished since I was three um, and uh, then started hunting at 10 years old and my dad was a gunsmith my whole life, uh, you know, in my younger years, and so every weekend we would go hunting or fishing or camping somewhere, and uh, my dad's, you know, passion really was was actually bass fishing, Um, and so that I grew up doing that. Uh, As a kid, you know, my dad didn't, you know, make a ton of money and doing what he was doing, and so we would Um, we couldn't afford the, you know, hunting here in Texas because Texas was high dollar hunting, you know, even back then, you know, like to go shoot a a buck was like $5,000, you know, and now they're $10,000 and more, you know, here in Texas. So we really didn't have the money to do that. So we didn't really get into, into, uh, you know, the deer side of it, but what we did a lot of, and we had free access to it was dove hunting and quail hunting. So I grew up doing a lot of dove and quail hunting. And, um, then kind of things changed for us, uh, because my dad was a gunsmith, um, and he was, uh, one of his customers basically hired him away to manage his ranch. He was a rich rancher down here in in Texas that hunted Africa and all over the world. His name was Calvin Benson, uh, with the Benson family, Senator and, you know, uh, well-known family here in Texas. And so, he hired my dad away and had my dad start managing his 2200 acre ranch here in South Texas. And they, they had, you know, white-tailed deer, they had exotic animals, they had ostriches and zebras, and they even had rhinoceros on this place. So really was, yeah, they were part of this uh, conservation organization called GameCoin and they brought uh, rhinoceros over from Africa uh, back in the mid eighties Back when the poaching problem was so terrible, trying to start a breeding population here in Texas, because if they did that over in Africa, it would have been a heyday for the poachers to get all the rhino horn they wanted. So they started importing them over from Africa to Texas, starting a population here, and then start shipping them back to Africa to repopulate. Um, wow, so, crazy. I knew they always had a problem with
0: like, uh, and
1: stuff, but I never knew they did that in Texas. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and I, I don't think they advertised it cause they were worried about poaching problems and stuff like that, but, uh, they mm-hmm. started a population here and, and the ranch that my dad managed was one of the first ones to, to do that. And one of the first ones to have a baby rhino on it. So anyway, so I started shooting photos out at the ranch and, um, you know, I photographed all these, you know, exotic animals and. You know, white tailed doe and fawn, and you know, it was like August of 1985 that I started shooting photos. And so, I had you know always wanted to shoot photos like I saw in the hunting magazines because you know, as a hunting family, my dad was add subscriptions to you know the hunting magazines, field and stream, outdoor life, Texas oh, fishing yeah. game, you know, those kind of magazines. And so, I always saw those photos in the magazines thinking man I would love to shoot photos like that but having no idea that I would one day be you know shooting photos for those magazines and making my living from those magazines and so I just started out at the ranch and started shooting photos and you know showed them to some you know professional photographers that I got to know and they were like man these are actually really good you ought to you know consider trying to send some into the magazines and so I shot for about three years um, and started sending them into to some of the state magazines and started, you know, getting stuff published. You know, when I was 19 was the first time I got something published. And um, anyway, but that came out of my love for hunting and fishing. And, and uh, I shot my first deer, I think, at 16 also uh, out at the ranch that my dad was managing, uh, which was a doe, uh, which is how he wanted us to start out before we started trying to hunt bucks and stuff like that. So uh, anyway, my love for uh, photography, you know, comes from my love for hunting and fishing. And so I'm still a hunter and fisherman. I do it every chance I get. But when I have opportunities to hunt hunt nowadays, I usually give that opportunity to my kids and so that they can hunt. And so I've got out of my four kids, I've got three daughters and one son out of my four kids. uh, I have one daughter and one in my son that love hunting and fishing. My other two kids, I've introduced them to it, made the opportunity, and they just haven't been that interested in it. So I'm not a kind of guy that forces them into it and makes them do what they don't want to do. I just, you know, take them out, let them try it, see if they like to do it. And if they don't, that's fine. If they do, then let's go do some more of it. So I've got one daughter, one son that that love to hunt.
0: Yeah, that's kind of how my family is because I'm the baby of the family and I'm diehard. I've always loved it. My brother liked it when he was a little younger, but. He always loved sports, and my sister couldn't care at all about going hunting, you know? But right. My, my mom and dad were the same way. Like, they didn't push it. They pushed whatever you loved. If you wanted to go to baseball, they'd be there at every baseball game. If you wanted to go hunting, my dad would go hunting with me too. So I exactly. think that's, like, that's a really important way to do it. You can't push it down a kid's throat that doesn't like it because now I got nieces and nephews, and I got one nephew who's fired up with it. He killed his first solo deer last week Right. on, on his first ever hunt. And then we got the other ones that – kind of had the interest one a few times, but didn't really like it.
1: Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, with our four kids, um, you know, like with, you know, like we, one of the things that we started doing about 11, 12 years ago is we started homeschooling our kids so that they could go with me on my photo shoots around the United States and get exactly. to, you know, see places other than South Texas. Cause we, we live down in McAllen, Texas, which is the bottom tip of Texas, uh, Four hours drive south of San Antonio, 10 hours south of Dallas, five hours southwest of Houston. I mean, we're at the very, very bottom tip of Texas. If you drive eight miles south of my house, I would go over the Rio Grande River and be in Mexico. So, you know, you hear about all the border war shows and all the stuff that's going on with the border situation. Well, that's basically just eight miles south of us. And so I didn't want my kids to think that the whole United States was like where we live, which is, you know, here in South Texas, where it's the home of rattlesnakes and, you know, uh, thorn brush and cactus and mesquite trees and palm trees and orange trees and stuff like that. We live in a very kind of almost subtropical area down here. And uh, the culture is very different. And so I wanted them to see the rest of the United States, the Midwest, the eastern United States, the south. I wanted them to go out west. And so we did all those trips. Uh, while they, while we were homeschooling them and we wanted to make opportunities available to them when we were back home, like, you know, when they were, um, you know, wanting to get into music or whatever, we had them in orchestra and, you know, let them pick out the instrument they wanted. But if they, after a year, they weren't interested in it, we had them finish the year, but if they wanted to continue with it, then they could. And one of my daughters did violin for a number of years. My other daughter did the cello for a year. She decided it wasn't for her. She wasn't enjoying it. So we didn't make her finish out, you know, all four years of high school doing that. So yeah. just, you know, kind of figured out what their bent was, what they were interested in and then had them, you know, do what, uh, what they enjoyed doing. And so now I've got my oldest, that's a, a chef. She's out in California. Um, then my second daughter is a photographer in Calif- uh, Colorado and and actually not a wildlife photographer believe it or not she actually does uh, wedding and portrait photography and then my yeah, third daughter money that. yeah and then a lot more than wildlife photography that's for sure
0: mm-hmm. and
1: uh, then my third daughter is actually in college she just graduated back in may uh, and she's in alabama uh, going to bible college out there and then my son 16 he's at home and we're still homeschooling him and all he thinks about is hunting fishing shooting uh, guns at every opportunity and trying to be outdoors as much as he can
0: hey it must be something about the babies in the family because that's how i am i've always just been jacked up with it like my dad used to climb up a climber with me like i remember we were being like
1: 30 foot in the air but he tells me it was only about eight foot off the ground at the highest <laughs> <laughs> right yep yep yeah he, he loves it and he's kind of a mini me so anyway he he wants to be out there every day if he could he was just hunting coyotes uh, with his best friend uh, on Saturday uh, for that uh, friend's birthday that was what they wanted to do for his birthday was go out and hunt coyotes and they called in three but didn't kill any but uh, anyway they uh, he, he loves it and anything having to do with guns or hunting or fishing he's he's into it he's into fly fishing now it's his big thing okay
0: yeah I've done that time or two it's, it's pretty hard I haven't like spent enough time to be good at it Yep,
1: yeah, yep, yeah, exactly
0: So one question I got for you, you're obviously getting pictures of these absolute giants, like some of the bucks people just dream of. And you're one of the, honestly, the best white tail photographers I've ever seen. Like I've sat there and went through your photos many times, just like gazing at like the just awesomeness of your photos. So uh, a lot of people will wonder, like, how are you getting up so close to these bucks? And like, like, where are these properties at if that's not asking too much?
1: Well, like what style properties? Say it again. What was the last thing you said? just like the style of a property is it like the private or public or Um, I photograph all over the United States. The thing is on, on Instagram and that kind of thing, uh, Facebook and LinkedIn and some of the different pages I've got, you're seeing photos basically that I've shot over the last 25 years. So you're not seeing what I shoot on a daily basis. And and a lot of people must think that. Um, But I figure for every 12 times I go out, I get, one day out of 12 times or 12 days that is great and maybe two or three good days. Um, But for the most part, the photos you're seeing on Instagram are from the great days. And so you're seeing like one out of 12 days and there's nothing to show anybody because I don't take any pictures on the bad days. So people don't realize how many days go into the photos that they're actually seeing on Instagram. And I'm just posting the great days over the last 25 years and most of the photos you're seeing uh, have been since 2007, which is 15 years, um, you know, from 2022. And um, there, you know, that's when I went digital. Because before that, I was shooting film from 1985 till 20, 2006. And then 2007, I switched to digital and, you know, never, never went back to film. Um, and so you're seeing photos of deer from private property, public ground, Um, every kind of place you can imagine. I do photograph some high-fence deer. I photograph a lot of low-fence deer uh, or no-fence, you know, quote, wild deer, whatever you want to call it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I photograph on a variety of places uh, because I've got to photograph to make a living at what I do. You've got to photograph the animals that your customers want. And the magazines basically want like Boone and Crockett-sized deer, like 160 or better, Preferably 170 or better sized deer, but they don't want them too big. And so you can't photograph like pin deer, where it's like these small properties and stuff, or small little pins and stuff like that, because the deer tear up the the brush and the trees and all that. And it, you know there's nothing, no underbrush or anything like that, and it doesn't look natural. You got fence in the background, and the deer nowadays are so monstrously big at such a, a young age, it's really hard to find places to photograph deer that are kind of normal size in that 160 class or better 150 or better size range and that are mature you know that aren't one and two years old with a 300 inch rack you know like they're, they're doing with a lot of the pen deer nowadays so anyway so i go to the high fence places i go to um is you know usually 400 acres to tens of thousands of acres and um so it's on bigger properties where they're like hunting preserves and stuff like that but they're not um you know they're not uh small pen type situations like a lot of people think those deer uh on a lot of the places are hunted for six months of the year with high-powered rifles from august in velvet all the way through january in the snow and so those deer don't want to die just like deer on the outside don't want to die in the wild and so they are hunted for much more much longer time frame than deer on the outside and actually i've got places where they are so unbelievably spooky if they hear the camera click one time they're turning inside out running the other way wow really see i wouldn't have thought that yeah and i i actually you know a lot of these uh, landowners that have a high fence place they also have um their own property that they hunt for themselves outside of the high fence you know like Like, let's say that they've got a thousand acre uh, high fence hunting preserve. They'll have another, you know, couple thousand acres that's their hunting, you know, property for their, for themselves, or they'll have clients that want to go on the outside and hunt, you know, quote, wild deer. Those deer are so much easier to photograph than the deer in the high fence because they have so little hunting pressure on them. The ones on the outside, they get bow hunted for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, Uh, Gun hunting could be for, you know, a couple of weekends or, uh, you know, a couple of weeks, but nothing like the six months of hunting that's going on day in and day out inside the high fence. So there's been many times that I've, you know, sat in a blind all morning long, didn't see a deer on the inside the high fence and walking along the fence to my truck or whatever. I would see deer bounding away on the outside of the fence that, you know, I saw a lot more deer on the wild side than I did on the, on the quote, you know, tame high fence side
0: yeah yeah that's very interesting that's one thing i was actually wondering about and i remember reading uh or yeah one of your posts because that's one thing i like about you you explain like your photos pretty well and like what's going on in the photos and i remember reading one where it was just like a permission only they didn't let hunters go on there but they
1: would let you go on there right and i i go to a lot of places like that a lot of the kind of places like um like what the drury's do um, mm-hmm. where they're managing their, their deer on private ground, um, you know, where they are like family owning, only hunting, or they're limiting it and letting the deer grow up. That's a lot of the places I go to, you know, whether it's inside a high fence, which is he- has to be heavily managed because of the high fence, um, or if it's outside the high fence in a wild situation, it's usually on places that, where they do QDMA and manage the deer herd, they let the bucks grow up. And that, that to me is by far the most important thing to be able to try to photograph mature deer. And that's the problem I see all over the United States is that people um, don't wanna let them grow up any more than one or two years old. They, they shoot them whenever they're young, don't let them mature. And so that deer, even if he's got great genetics and has all the food in the world with all the corn and soybeans around to grow a big rack, If he doesn't have the age, he's not going to have a big rack. And so they can't, you know, um, exhibit their full antler potential if they're not fully mature. So that's why I go to places and, you know, people don't realize this. I go, I'll drive across, you know, multiple States trying to get to a place that it has, you know, is like one of the better States that's known for big deer because, The state manages the deer better because they don't let you hunt during the rut or, you know, with rifles and stuff like that. You know, like let's say in Iowa, I'll Mm -hmm. travel across and pass up a lot of states to get to Iowa. And within Iowa, I'll try to go to the best county. And within that best county, I'll try to go to the best property that is best managed within that that uh, that county in that state. And so I'm not just going willy nilly. And just finding, you know, these big deer everywhere. I have to go to specific properties that are well managed, that they let the deer grow up, they have a proper buck to doe ratio, and uh, where you have a chance at, you know, trying to photograph those kind of deer. And yeah. it's it's tougher yeah. because I'm I'm not up in a tree. I'm on ground level with the deer, and so I've got to have them within twenty to thirty yards to get a cover type photo that I'm needing. So I don't just go to any property just because it's my family's property and expect to see a Boone and Crockett deer on that place. I'm traveling past all those properties, going to places that people dream of going that's, you know, let's say down the road from them that is unhunted and some old grandma that owns it. And he's never allowed hunting ever in that place. And there's big deer that grow up because they mature there. They, they get to, to live their full lives out and so th- i get to go to those kind of places because grandma might let me go in but she's going not gonna let a hunter go in because you know she doesn't want her little pets you know killed or whatever you know so oh, yeah. so anyway so i get to go to places that most people you know never get to go to so that's how i get to photograph a lot of these really big deer
0: one thing i'm curious since you traveled all around the country if you could give like two or three states for like the best quote-unquote like wild whitetails what states would you pick just from your like photography side
1: the the state that i actually want to move to because uh from texas because i live at the bottom tip of texas just to get out of texas to try to get to the midwest 12 out of 24 hours to drive from here to let's say to minnesota or wisconsin or ohio 24 hours 12 hours of that is just in texas For me just driving north. I drive 12 hours north and I'm still in Texas. And so the rest of the other 12 hours of driving is through, you know, a half dozen, you know, Midwest states. So anyway, so um, I can go anywhere uh, that I want to go. But that where I want to move to is actually Ohio. Ohio, I think, has some of the better deer on it. But, you know, one of my favorites is Iowa. Another one is Kansas. They've got big deer. Um, but Ohio is probably my number one favorite state to photograph in uh for wild deer. And um, you know, Illinois is great, uh, Wisconsin is, is really good. Um, you know, there's a lot of you now a sleeper state is is Kentucky, uh and Tennessee right now is you know growing some big deer on it. Um, but I would say if I had to pick my top three, it would be Ohio iowa and kansas and if i had to pick my top number one it would be ohio okay see how i was
0: expecting the iowa and kansas or kansas and iowa so and ohio i mean ohio has giant bucks we're like butted up with it i live here in indiana and we might actually go there and chase them publicly in white tails if if we tag out early in our other two states because we're hunting kentucky and indiana
1: yeah well i love photographing in uh, indiana i have photographed a lot of big deer there um all over the, you know, all over the state, you know, and y'all got a lot of agriculture and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, y'all have got big deer there in Indiana as well. And that's one of my other, you know, I, I photograph and, you know, I don't know how many States I haven't figured out how many States I've photographed in total, but, you know, like, uh, one of my biggest trips that I, I did was where I hit 18 U S States and went to three or four Canadian provinces and put 40,000 miles on my suburban in four months time. And, okay. um, so, and then I also was gone, uh, for a month during the spring, uh, chasing turkeys and a month in the summer doing bass fishing photos. So I was gone six months of the year, but that was, uh, back when I was single and didn't have any kids and didn't homeschool kids. So now, you know, I travel for, you know, a month to two months to three months, uh, during the, you know, fall and winter and uh with the family and um you know that that it's changing you know we got kids that are leaving the house and graduating and you know I'm about to head out for a month with my son uh to go photograph you know mid-October to mid-November trying to get the fall colors up in Ohio and and uh, be there the last couple of weeks and then go to uh Michigan and Wisconsin for the first two weeks of the rut and um so anyway so it's it's changed up Um, and I'll, you know, do some other trips later in the year, but, um, anyway, um, you know, I've gone as long as six months gone, uh, the other six months of the year trying to sell the photos, but in this day and age, that was back in the film days in this day and age, I've got to be in the office much more because basically instead of me sending my film rolls of film out to a processor to process the photos and to have them ready as slides for me to send out to magazines, now i'm the processor and i have to do all the color corrections and all the stuff in my computer once i shoot all these photos so i'm actually in the office more than i'm out photographing in the field and a lot of people think i'm out there every day frolicking through the tulips with bambi but i'm i'm really in the office most of the year um and i i just get out kind of during the prime times you know fall colors and rut and stuff like that depending on what i want to get or if i'm trying to get you know velvet photos or shedding velvet i'll traveling late august and early september trying to get that and try to get early season deer hard antlers with uh, you know green vegetation in the background that's september time frame and every year i'll change up my trips and try to go a different time of the year to try and get what the magazine editors are wanting or what i haven't you know what i didn't photograph the year before you know like if i want to do snow photos you know i'll go in december and try and get that maybe january so, uh, anyway, so I, every year it kind of changes up, you know, where I travel and how long I'm gone. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And
0: one thing about guys like you that are really good at your job is you just make it look easy. Like you were saying, like everybody thinks you're out there frolicking just chasing Bambi and everything, but you spend like many, many, many hours without getting that one shot you're looking for. And I'm sure you had to go through hundreds and hundreds of pictures before you find that one that like the, the magazine is going to want for a cover photo or one of the issues or something like that. It's just yeah. Yeah. It's a, you lot a lot more methodical than people think.
1: Yeah, you shoot a lot of photos that, you know, are just, you know, they're not cover photos, but maybe they'll be good illustrative photos for the inside, like for an article or something like that. Um, but, you know, cover photos, you you know, those are few and far between. It's hard to hard to get those kind of photos. And, and uh, that's, you know, a small percentage of what you sell overall. You make your living basically through, the inside photos for the magazine, because they pay a lot less for the inside photos, but there's a lot more places in the magazine inside for those photos. And so that's kind of your bread and butter is the, you know, um, inside photos or the meat and potatoes, I guess you could say of your income. Um, They pay less, but there's a lot more of them. And so you make your money off of that. And then kind of the, you know, the the cake and the ice cream as the covers whenever you can get those. And, you know, I've been fortunate to be one of the main cover photographers to have, you know, probably as many or more covers than, you know, most photographers that are, you know, I'm competing against and uh, like Field and Stream and Outdoor Life. I think I, with uh, Outdoor Life, I think I've got 20 covers with them. And, um, with that, uh, field and stream, I've got 29 covers with them. So I've got, they're owned by the same company. That's 49 cover photos I've had with them. And, uh, then I've had, you know, hundreds of others with the other magazines out there, deer and deer hunting, North American whitetail, American hunter, all the, all the different hunting and fishing magazines out there. So so anyway, so that's kind of what my specialty is uh, as far as even within whitetail deer and turkeys and bass fishing is I'm considered more of a cover type photographer, but also somebody that shoots illustrative photos for the insides. And what I've got to do is I've got to think about page layout for the insides because you've got a two page spread, but you got a gutter down the middle where the magazine's basically glued or stapled together. And so you've got to think, okay. I need to put the deer off on the right or the left side, not in the middle so that, you know, his rack isn't split right down the middle through that gutter. And so you got to think about page layout, which you have to do for covers. Also, you got to think about the masthead or the, um, the title of the magazine, like field and stream at the top, and then all the cover blurbs around it. They don't want to have photos that have branches that are in sharp focus behind the deer. They want to have blurred out backgrounds so they can lay their text over it and and have uh, the photos kind of, or the, the words pop out uh, around the deer, you know, and have the deer kind of pop out in the middle and, of the cover. So you got to think about page layout. There's a lot of that kind of stuff that may not be artistically, you know, for composition, you know, may not work out with rule of thirds and all these rules that they've got for composition and art and photography, but it works good on a magazine page. So that's something else I'm constantly thinking about as, as well as, you know, how to how to shoot the photos for my intended target, which is the magazines. Yeah. So that's and, what I do.
0: Yeah, and uh, you, you talked about it a little bit, but do sometimes like the magazines, like ask you to get a certain type of photo, maybe a certain area
1: or style buck or something like that. Well, how, how it works, basically, we've got to have photos pre-shot before they know what they need. Because basically a magazine works um, when they're wanting photos, they're wanting photos four to six months before the magazine comes out. So like I just got done with most of my photo submissions for the year during the summer, late, late spring, early summer, or through the whole summer. And basically they're asking for photos of like, let's say fall colors for the October issue. They're asking for those photos like in June and July. And so I can't go out and shoot photos of what they're wanting for that issue because there's no fall colors back in June or July. So I've got to have those shot at least a year in advance. And I've got to figure out what they want before the editor wants it. And so they're constantly, you know, kind of recycling through what they're wanting. I know that every year they're going to want photos on a, like a, a June, July issue of deer and velvet. I know that in September, they're going to want deer and hard antler with uh, green vegetation in the background, early season type stuff for like their scouting issues and that kind of thing. I know that in October, they're going to want fall color deer. Uh, Then in November, they're going to want deer and rut with grays and browns and winter in the background. And then I know in December, January issues, they're going to want deer and snow. So I know that I need to shoot that kind of stuff and shoot new stuff every year but i can sell them photos that i've shot in the past they don't you know a deer doesn't cha- change its hairstyle or their <laughs> glasses style or any of that kind of stuff they look the same year to year the only thing that changes is maybe the technology like from slide film to digital images and so you know i can't sell my old digi- or my old uh, slides anymore because the magazines want you know, original digital captures. They want it shot with a digital camera. And so that technology changes. And so I lost like 15 years of photos that are just sitting here in my office that I can't sell anymore, but I know that they're going to want, you know, these photos year to year. And I know that they're going to want photos of deer rubbing. I know that they're going to want deer scraping. I know that they're going to want to have bucks chasing does or following does or cruising. So, every year they're going to ask for those kind of photos, like for the rut issue or, you know, deer and food plots, you know, I know that there's going to be stuff they're going to want. And then I always try to photograph the rare things that are happening, like two bucks fighting or a buck breeding a doe Um, photos like that, you know? And so I try to shoot everything that happens in front of me. And basically after all these years, I have basically photographed white tailed deer doing everything that white tailed deer do. I I can't think of really one thing that a white-tailed deer does that I haven't photographed and have photographed it in multiple times and in multiple seasons. So I have a big photo file that when an editor is wanting a specific photo, they'll send me want lists and they'll say, okay, for the upcoming October issue on the cover, we want a buck that is, you know, a big, typical buck or we want a non-typical and we want fall colors behind it or just we want white tails with fall colors that are cover caliber type photos and then inside we're going to do an article about hunting the October lull. We're going to do an article about uh, hunting over scrapes and so send us photos of deer making scrapes and so they'll give us specifics of what they want um, as far as what articles that they have had come in from the writers that they work with and so then they, when they've read through the articles, they come to the photographers, which could be like 20 of my competitors, and they send out a want list by email and say, this is what we've got coming up for this issue. These are the photos we want. So all of us have to have all our photos pre-shot at least a year ago. And, you know, I saw photos that, you know, I shot back in 2007 when I went digital uh, for the first time. And so those photos are 15 years old. But the deer don't, like I said, don't change their hairstyles or glasses styles. They don't. The camo that they're wearing doesn't change. You know, it's just deer fur, so that's you know not a problem. Selling older photos. The only negative is is that they're you know like on you know smaller megapixel files. It's like eight megapixel photos that I shot in two thousand seven, compared to nowadays where I shoot twenty five to forty five megapixels, and you can crop in a lot more. So there's more you can do with the more modern photos shot on, you know, technologically advanced, you know, with uh, camera equipment with more megapixels and stuff like that, that are better quality. So, yep. so anyway, so they don't really say, Hey, I want you to go out and photograph this deer in fall colors because they, they want you to already have those photos, you know, in, in house that you can send them. And so basically what I'm, what I am is a stock photographer. I go out, I do my own self-assignments, I shoot the stuff that they want in advance before they even want it before they even know what they want. So I'm going out paying for all my trips, um, deciding where I go. And with assignments, they would tell me we want you to go photograph this, you know, because it's like some guy making duck duck decoys or, you know, something like that. And so on that situation there, that's an assignment. I'm a stock photographer and, I don't get paid until they actually use a photo. So I get paid whenever they run a photo, it's come out in the magazine, and then they, I send them an invoice later on and they pay me based on what they actually use. Not like a assignment photographer that gets paid for all the photos in a shoot. You okay, know? Right. So, yeah. so it's a little different what I do. So you, you got a lot of photos and stuff. The hardest one I could think why you were saying that is uh, like a buck mid shed. You ever got a picture of that? Um, I've got photos of bucks with one antler on and I've got photos with both antlers off where they're looking down at the antlers, uh, cause they shed them at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. but I've never gotten one, like actually falling off. Like some of the videos you see of mule deer and, you know, elk and stuff where they fall off their head. I've never, never been fortunate to get a still photo of that. And I'm not sure that I know of any photographer that's really gotten that. So that, that would yeah, probably okay. that's, be, that's what I had to think. Yeah, so it, it, I did say I've got just about everything white-tailed deer do. That would probably be one of the few that I don't have. So that's pretty rare, but I don't think any photographers got that that I have seen anyways.
0: Okay, that's a rare to even see it, but to be there,
1: have your camera up, and catch it right before it hits the ground, you know? Exactly, because there's no indication that it's actually a fall off. I, I've been photographing deer um, where I've got photos of them while they were in front of me where the antler was on one second and the next second, second, like they lowered their head down to feed. And, it, you know, I quit clicking the shutter and it fell off when they, you know, started eating and then they put their head back up. And then it, you know, I went from, you know, one antler, one second to, or two antlers, one second to one antler, the next second. And then it started bleeding down the side of their face and stuff like that from the pedicle where the antler just was. So I've had that, but I've never, I've seen antlers fall off, but actually where, where I was pressing the button, because, you know, my cameras shoot, you know, so many frames, you know, per second that you don't want to press it every time because it'll fill up the buffer. Or like in the slide days, it would end the, you know, you know, roll of 36 slides on a piece on film so fast that, you know, and you're paying for every one of those. You don't just hold the button down the whole time like you can with video and just let them go, you know. Yeah. I can say I, I figured that had to be a really hard shot, but I'm, I'm sure if somebody got it, a lot of magazines would want it, you know. Yeah yeah exactly yeah and i've had you know requests for deer shedding you know antlers and stuff like that and i've got photos of deer you know that have one antler on one antler off and you know or two antlers off and you know bleeding you know from the pedicles and stuff like that looking at the antlers and that kind of thing so i've got those but not the actual falling off their head kind of thing that's more of a video type thing that you know i think people have more chance of that happening for sure
0: And, uh, I don't want to keep you too long, but one thing I kind of want to talk about is like, if there's any stories or like memories when you were photographing that just like stick out of something like crazy that happened, doesn't even have to be white tails, just like some weird or cool moments that just stick out in your brain from your 35 plus
1: years. Oh man. I mean, there are so many, so many stories I could tell you. I mean, something, uh, that was kind of, kind of funny that happened, um, is I had one of my, uh friends from high school. And, um, but you know, this was, you know, we're, we're, we're still best friends to this day, but, uh, he and I went rattling, um, trying to photograph some deer here in South Texas. And, uh, we were behind a cactus and we were rattling and hitting the horns and, you know, hitting the brush around us and stuff like that. And we had a buck run in and we had to duck behind the cactus because the buck jumped over the top of us and, um, landed on the other side of us, turned around, Saw us and then snorted and blasted out of there. So I never even got any photos of that buck um, because he he never stopped until he was uh, behind us and I had my camera facing out in front of us. So that was a that was a pretty crazy uh, situation. Um, You know, I've I've had uh, all kinds of cool stuff happening. Uh, I mean, my favorite thing in the whole world is when I take my kids out hunting and you know they shoot something that. You know, we've been hunting for a long time, and and uh, they, you know, get a you know monstrous smile on their face when they, you know, shot their first deer or, or a wild hog or something like that. And so that's probably my funnest experiences out in the out in the woods. Uh, mm-hmm. But as far as craziness, I would say probably that uh, that white tub buck jumping over the top of us. And if I hadn't, you know, uh, ducked down when he came in, he probably would have, you know, hit us with his hooves as he flew over that cactus. Yep. I've always heard Texas is a really good place to rattle, and It sounds like it worked that day. Well, there's, there's one reason why it's good. And that's because in Texas, we have basically been doing what they're doing in the Midwest or more people are starting to do is the QDMA quality deer management. We were the ones that started that back in like the 1960s and seventies here in Texas and starting to let the deer grow up to maturity and to have a proper buck to doe ratio. And I that have was rattled, the early
0: days of like the uh, National Deer Association, right? I, I, I think I remember reading upon that. Like, a couple guys started, and then that's what branched off to be
1: the National Deer Association. It uh, might be. I I really don't know. But um, basically, we, you know, had you know, be, it's it's kind of a kind of a love hate relationship because you know, here in Texas, we're ninety eight percent private ground. 2% public ground. So the bad thing is, for like a poor kid like me that didn't have a, you know, parents with a lot of money to be able to pay for a $5,000 hunt back in the 80s, um, there's not much public land, which a lot of states, you know, Indiana, Pennsylvania, a lot of places have, you know, public land where you can, you know, go hunt whenever you want or you can apply or whatever. And here in Texas, we have very little of that. And especially down here in South Texas where I am. So, um, so that, that's good in the respect that there's a lot of private landowners that have good reason to manage the the hunting on the ranch and manage, you know, because it's not so much deer management, it's more people management, uh, keeping people from pulling the trigger on deer. And so that's what they can do here in Texas with the large properties, is they can say, okay, you're going to go out with a guide and you can't shoot anything under five years old or six years old you know some places down here they don't shoot them until they're seven and a half or older and um i've never heard of being
0: that old that's crazy
1: (laughs) yeah one of the ranches that i photograph on down here in south texas is the las Riesas ranch i don't know if you've heard of that place Mm -hmm. um but uh you know it's 4200 acres it's a totally native herd they never put any outside genetics in or anything like that and um they don't they don't shoot five and six year old deer They wait till they're seven and a half years old and they've got a buck on, on the property this year that, um, last year he was a a 240 inch non-typical at six years old. They let the deer live. They were, they were, they were wanting to see what he'd be at seven because in their, in their experience of owning this place since the eighties, they found that most of the deer on their ranch peak out at seven and a half years old. Well, this year we had a bad drought during the, during the spring when the deer were growing their antlers and that deer, because of the drought at seven years old, he went down to where he's like in the low two hundreds this year. So I talked to a landowner the other day and he said, you know what, I'm going to let him live till eight. And I think he'll, you know, uh, be bigger, you know, than he was at six. Um, there's some places I've been on and seen some research, um, Uh, that they've done on Texas ranches um, with like net gunning deer every year. And uh, some of them don't uh, grow their biggest rack till 10 and a half years old. Um, Yeah. I feel like that's different for us in the
0: Midwest. I feel like, I feel like seven, (laughs) you're probably
1: going downhill after seven here in Indiana. That's, that's typical, but it it does happen. And so anyway, so, you know, some ranch, a lot of ranches, most ranches will wait till they're five. Mm -hmm. A lot of them will wait till they're six. Some of them till seven and a half. And, um, you know, I've seen, you know, they've got photos of these deer year after year. I'm one of those guys that I try to be a little more reasonable, but I'm not the landowner, of course. But my thoughts are wait till the deer is at least five and a half because when he's four and a half, he's right on the edge of maturity. Let him get to at least five and a half before you, you decide to shoot him. It's, it's tough because you got neighbors and all that kind of stuff that are going to possibly kill that deer. But if you shoot him, there's a zero percent chance of him making it to the next year and getting a little bigger. And I, I know there's a lot of people that just say shoot whatever deer. That's fine if that's what you want to do on your property. Go shoot every one and two year old that walks out in front of you. But don't gripe that you don't have any mature deer on your place because they're not, you're not going to have mature deer unless one happens to come from another property or something and happens to you know stumble across you know in front of you. So Anyway, so, you know, that's that's my philosophy on it. If you want to grow big deer, and those are kind of the places I concentrate on, are the places that do have people control and, or people management, and they don't shoot them when they're one, two, three years old. You know, some places might shoot them at four, but the best places I go to wait till they're at least five years old. And Once they're five, they're mature. Uh, they may get a little bigger at six or seven, um, but, you know... I am my personal standard is a buck that's at least five and a half years old whenever I'm hunting myself. And so, you know, to me, the older they are, the more I like them. And I, I actually have gotten to the point in my, you know, experience with deer is that I get more excited about foot or uh, hunting an old deer than, you know, a deer that's just barely mature, you know, like at four and a half or five and a half. I I'd love to kill an eight or nine or 10 year old buck compared to a five or six year old even if his rack's yeah. smaller because uh, he's degressing in size. So anyway. Yeah, it's kind I of funny remember, you, but- you
0: say that because on my uh, family property, it's just a 26-acre property. It's like high pressure, and we've lived there. This is going on year 9 or 10, and in those 10 years, we probably had a five, five-year-old five buck or older maybe six times ever on, that, on, on our cameras, and we run cameras quite a bit throughout the, the whole year, most of the year. Right. uh, i saw a buck yesterday evening which i have history with him and i'm pretty sure he's a three-year-old and i'm just like so on the fence like i want to shoot an older buck we got another property that we can hunt too but he's just it's it's like he's such a border he's a good three-year-old but i want a little more of a mature buck like you're talking about but i haven't been hunting as long as you either and i've only killed two bucks with a bow too so if i had a bow in my hand and uh, he walked out and it was good footage because i'm self-filming I might let it go. I might yeah. might let the arrow go. It's just one of those things in the moment I'm going to decide. Cause I watched him for about 20 minutes last night. He was, he was basically in range just sitting in thick stuff and was filming and filming him. And yeah. I, like, when I see him with my own eyes, I guess I'll make that decision, but I would like to pass him, but it's easier said than done.
1: Well, here, here's the thing. Uh, years ago, um, North American whitetail had done a, a study on, what the percentage chance is that a buck will make it to the next year. And if you have a buck walk under you from this study, and this was back in the late eighties, early nineties, I remember reading this. And they said that in that article and in the research that they had done, that if a buck gets one and a half years old, walks under your tree stand and you don't shoot it, there's only a 25% chance that he won't get hit by a car he won't die of ehd or he won't get shot by the neighbor you know ac- across the the fence from you you mm-hmm. know or or down the way you know on the next property more than likely there's a 75% chance that that deer is going to not is going to die by the next year but if you shot him when he was walking under you there's a 0% chance he'll make it to the next year as a bigger yeah. buck as a yeah, two year old Okay. Now, if that deer makes it to two and a half with only a 25% chance to make it to three and a half years old, he's only got a 25% chance, again, making it to three and a half years old without dying for whatever reason, hit by a car, getting shot by a neighbor, whatever. Every year, 25%. And you got to think that's the 25% chance of the year before. So when they make it to five years old, a big mature buck, like, uh, the, what is the Indiana record buck, the Huff Buck, or whatever it's called?
0: Yeah. yeah, I did a podcast with him. He's a real cool dude.
1: Yeah. And that buck there to make it to that age isn't 25%, you know, just that year. If you take 25% of one and a half, and 25% of two and a half, and 25% of three and a half to make it to whatever age that deer was, five and a half years old, let's say, it's only like a you know, 2% chance that that deer, you know, made it to that, that age by yeah. you not shooting it as a one and a half year old. Imagine if that huff buck was shot at one and a half years old as a little tiny eight point. Yeah.
0: That, you know, you're even a button buck. because tons of button bucks. Or even a, year.
1: even a button buck. If he was a spike, I'm, you know, I'm very anti-spike hunting. I, I feel, unless you're a kid or you just want to have meat for the freezer or whatever, you know, I'm all for people just hunting. Yeah, me too. But if I'm you're so wanting long. to have trophy animals on your property, then you're gonna need to pass up deer. And I've got a yeah. guy in New York that I've gotten to know. He his name's uh uh on Instagram is Wild Game Freaks. I don't know if you follow him or not. Yeah, but yeah, yeah he's he's a friend of mine. I actually did a a, a game feast uh, dinner at. Uh, the, I was a featured speaker at his church. He's a pastor of a church up in uh, Gasport, New York. And I've been talking to him for the last five years. I've known him through, you know, Instagram and social media, and he is finally passing up bucks. And I've talked to him and talked to him and talked to him. And so he's been passing up deer and I'm sure other people have been talking to him. I'm not taking all the credit, but I've been telling him what can happen if you let deer go. And he just, you know, hunts property right behind his house. And, um, anyway, he's been letting deer go last year. He shot a buck that was like eight and a half years old. He said that, that he is never going to shoot a young buck again because he has seen that the deer are getting bigger and bigger every year because he's passing deer up and, you know, eating tag soup some years where he's not, you know, killing a deer, he'll shoot does and stuff like that. And he'll have deer meat that way, but it's tougher, the smaller the properties are, because these deer will range, you know, deer in the rut, you know, over a 6,000 acre, you know, chunk of property. Well, if you've got 26 acres, like you're saying with your family, it's harder and harder to, protect that deer by not killing him and not have somebody else shoot him more than likely he's going to get shot somewhere else but think about it that research i told you about if you let him go he has a 25 percent chance of making it to the next year but he has a zero percent chance if you kill him
0: yeah 100 okay? yeah I, I think the same way and, uh, like, one reason I'm doing that is because we have this farm property I share with one of the guys on my team, and it it holds more mature gears because one of the neighbors has a huge chunk of land and they manage as well. So we can actually let bucks walk. So that's kind of what I'm thinking because we got some bucks that would be great bucks next year. We got, like, a bunch of good three- and four-year-olds. So right. um, I'm kind of thinking about going after this one uh, three-and-a-half-year-old because they just don't make it. On this property, they're just every neighbor hunt, It's all small chunks, like, every once in a blue moon. So I'm thinking about just maybe – going after this buck, filling my Indiana tag, and then letting the farm go
1: a whole nother year and let that whole another age class go up. Right, right. Yeah, and it's hard to do, man. I know. Believe me, especially when you see, you know, your neighbor calls you over and the buck that you had just passed up that afternoon, he calls you that night. Hey, I got a buck. You go over there and that was the buck that had just walked under your stand. That messes with your head, man. I I understand that. And I can totally 110% empathize with people that don't want to let them walk because they're like, I'm not going to kill a buck this year. But if you do that more and more and shoot those instead and have meat to, you know, provide for your family, if you pass up those young bucks, a certain percentage of them are going to make it to a maturity. Yeah. And, and I but, think, but I you, you got to be, be the first it, one to, you got to be the first one to pass them up.
0: Yeah, and you I know. think they'll they'll be harder to kill each year, too, you know, because they're going to get smarter. They're going to know the property they're on better, where people, the pressure's yep. coming from. Because that buck that I'm talking about that I saw last night, I, I had him walk under my stand three or four times last year as a two-year-old. Yeah. Like two-year-old's not even in my mind. Like, three-year-olds, I don't really want to shoot a three-year-old, but if he's a big one, I'll, I'll probably let it just because where I'm at in my hunting career depending on the property as well. But like this morning I went out and uh, I passed two spikes, could have smoked two spikes at 30 yards, but that's just, like you said, if you, you
1: don't let them go, at hundred percent chance, you'll never get that trophy buck you're after or that big mature buck. Exactly. Exactly. So anyway, I, I, I know, man. And I, I hear all the people that say, you know, I want to shoot whatever you can not eat the horns and all that stuff. I agree with that 110%. My dad was a, you can't eat the horns kind of guy you know, and of course I've turned out, you know, to be very much different because of my photography career and all that. But honestly, to me, the thing that excites me more than the antlers that you can't eat also is maturity. I mean, those old bucks don't taste nearly as good as the young ones do. And the, the young bucks don't taste nearly as good as the does do. And so, you know, I'd rather hunt a mature buck to make room for, for another young buck to have the food that that eight year old buck, that's a, you know, or a ten-year-old buck that's you know got a little tiny six-point rack or whatever because he's regressed from what he had at his at his uh, full antler potential at five or six or seven years old. I'd rather shoot that deer just because he's the smartest deer in the woods and the yeah, you know hardest exactly. one to kill. That to yeah. me is what excites me, not rack size anymore. What excites me is maturity, and so that's why I I preach the uh, waiting until they're mature. But man, I understand it with kids. My my son a couple of years ago shot his first buck and it was a little, little two year old, you know, 90 inch buck. And, um, anyway, I, I, I didn't begrudge him for that. I, I want yeah. him to shoot that kind of deer. You know, I want him to have that excitement. If that deer excites you, then, then kill it. But yeah, after exactly. you get some experience and it, you know, it's just shooting a buck just to show on social media or whatever. And it's a two year old little eight point. That's a, you know, 110 inches. Man, that buck will be so much bigger if you'll just let him go. You know, it would mean a so much more to
0: you if you shot that more mature bug, especially if you had history. Like even though I'm talking about this three and a half year old, this other property, we're chasing him with, he's five and a half at the minimum, but I believe he's six and a half. He's just uh he's not a real good genetic eight point. He's just your normal eight point, not real long times, but he's got a probably this year a four or five inch drop time. So this really? is year yeah, year three chasing him in. We got so many pictures of him and we've hunted him. We've seen him with our eyes a couple times, but he's just smart and he's staying a step ahead of us every year. But we think this year is going to be the year we switched up a lot, stayed off the property a lot more and just thought a way more in depth, being more methodical, trying to get that, get after him. But for me, I'm like secondary on that property. I can't go hunt it whenever I want. So,
1: you know, Gotcha. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. Everybody's got their own situation and their own reasons why they shoot deer at certain ages. I don't, I don't give people guilt over that. I mean, no, no. I, I, I will pat everybody on the back and tell them congratulations, give them a hug, give them a, a high five, give them a handshake for killing whichever deer that they decided to kill, um, which some guys kind of try to shame me and stuff like that. I, I, but I have seen, you know, that, you know, what a deer can grow into. Cause I photograph deer all the way from a year and a half, all the way until they die at 12 years old. And I can see how they, you know, progress and what they will move into and change in just one year. And so oh, yeah. because I have seen that, and most people don't have that opportunity because they see a buck and they just shoot it. You know, mm-hmm. that's the things that that is so great about wildlife photography and, and photographing whitetails at close range, like I do sitting in a blind, totally blacked out inside, is I get to see these deer up close for a longer period of time than even bow hunters do because I I let them stand there in front of me until they decide to leave or feed or whatever they are. If it's a food plot or whatever, I'm not shooting at them as soon as I get a good shot at them. And so I get to see deer in situations. Most hunters don't get to see. And so I also, because I'm not shooting them and I'm on properties that the landowners, letting them mature until they, until they try to hunt them. I get to see those deer go through their immature years at one and a half, two and a half, three and a half, four and a half. And I see what they turn into each year, how much, what percentage of growth that they make jump from one year to the next, and that to me is so cool and something that I have seen. And so I just want to take every person, all fifty-seven thousand followers on my Instagram, with me to these properties I photographed, because I I I really feel like if people could see what I get to see on a you know day in and day out basis when I'm on a property that they wouldn't want to shoot him at one and two years old because they would be like, wow, I had no idea that buck would get that big if I just let him, let him go. Yeah. And their body size are just crazy. once they And get their body that. size, the amount of yeah. meat that you get is so much more too.
0: Yeah. Like, cause we got this one buck we call pretty boy. He's only a three-year-old this year, but he went from a hundred, probably 110 inch two-year-old to he's probably 145 this year. And that's just from two to three. So. I would love right. to see him get to four, and once once he gets to four, I mean, he's he's big enough. We're probably not going to be able to pass him just because. Especially my one buddy, he just got back into hunting. He hasn't killed a whole lot of bucks, but if we can, if we can just give him one more year and he gets to that mature at four, like uh, he might he, he might blow up to one eighty. You never know.
1: Yeah, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. So anyway, so that's why I'm so. I don't want to come across to people as preachy, but. I have just seen the reality of what these deer can grow into. And most people have not had that opportunity. Uh, mm-hmm. Most people don't even really know how to even age deer and stuff like that. That's, that's another part of the, the big problem out there is just, you know, people just don't have experience with it. But the thing is, if people could just see what these deer, how much bigger they can get from one year to the next at whatever age they are and what they could grow into at maturity, it would blow people's mind and they, they wouldn't have the desire to shoot them at such a young age because they could see what they will grow into and just, and shoot does instead. You know, if you're wanting just a meat, meat buck or whatever, shoot a doe if you can or whatever. I mean, every state's different. They got their tag regulations and all that kind of stuff. I totally understand that. But if you could just let them try to grow up a little bit more, man, people would see the difference. And a lot of people doing the QDMA and, you know, the, the, you know, ma- uh, management of a whitetail herd on their property or whatever they are, they have seen what it'll do and it's getting to be a bigger and bigger thing, but there's still yeah. so much of the country, you know, like New York state, I photographed in New York a couple of years ago and, you know, most of the deer that are shot are one and a half and two and a half years old in that state. I think it's like a uh, 75 or 80% of the deer herd is, you know, one and a half and two and a half years old that is shot mm-hmm. statewide. And, uh, I got to photograph on some property up there that is public ground, but it's unhunted. And, um, they, I was photographing in this one spot and there was this buck that was seven and a half years old. And this buck was like 175 inches. He was like a mainframe nine with some forks and stuff like that. Just really, really big deer. He was probably almost 300 pounds. Wow right next to him because i was photographing him like in october when they you know he was still letting other bucks around him and stuff like that um there was two other bucks in the area They were both six pointers one of them was a five-year-old one was a six-year-old they were six-year-olds or six pointers uh like the year before i mean they were what you would call call bucks yeah and so this deer here he wasn't that big because necessarily so much because of age over the other deer because at six years old, he was about the same size, maybe about five inches smaller. But the thing is, he had the genetic potential to grow bigger antlers than the other deer at the same age. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I'm not saying that every deer that you let go by you is going to grow into a and Crockett deer. Nope. But the more that you let go, the percentages say that a certain percentage of those are going to have higher quality genetics than some of the other deer because the majority of those deer are going to have genetics of being at most 125 inch eight point. That's all they're going to be their whole life. Yeah. That's kind of how that drop time buck is. He's bigger than that. He's, he's got
0: long beams, but his time length, he doesn't have very long times.
1: Right. And that, that may be as big as that buck ever gets. But the thing yeah. is, you don't know that until he's mature and you don't know, you, there's no way you can tell at one and two years old but a deer is going to turn into as a you know five or six year old buck so the important thing is let them grow up quote call them if you need to at a half years old before you make that decision or six and a half years old and let the ones that are you know big tens or you know 12s or whatever or they have kickers or drops or whatever let those guys definitely mature and those are you know like your trophy bucks but the you know, don't try to think you can figure out what a deer is going to look like at one and two years old because you have no clue. Yep, exactly. And every deer is different, like you were just saying,
0: too. Like some, like that buck I call home, or pretty boy, he blew up and gained, I don't know,
1: 30 or 40 inches at least in one year. And he's only a three-year-old. He's still not even mature. Right. There, there's a buck here in South Texas that I started photographing early on in my career. And the first year I photographed him, um, he was three and a half years old. He was a hundred and 130, maybe 140 class clean eight. That was three and a half years old. The next year, at four and a half years old, he jumped up from, you know, like 130 inches to like 165 inch 13 point. He went from an eight point to a six by, he was like a six by five with like a couple of kickers or something. So he had 13 points total, but he was basically like a, a five by six. Okay. So he, you know the saying once an eight pointer always an eight pointer that's total bull that on some deer that that is true but mm-hmm. for the most part deer fluctuate in size and this deer is a good example of it so at three years old 130 to 140 inch eight point four years old 165 inch um 13 point six by five mainframe at five and a half years old he was a 13 point again six by five mainframe everything got bigger. He was like 198 inches gross from at five years old. So he jumped like 30 inches each year from three years old to four years old to five years old. Then at six years old, we had a bad drought here in Texas. I mean, it was a bad one. That buck went down to a 160 inch nine point. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he lost like almost 40 inches of antler because of drought. Not because it wasn't a peak year, six and a half. He should have had as bigger, a bigger rack than he did at five and a half. Then at seven, we had good rain and he went up to like 175 inch. uh, He was like a five by five mainframe, but he dropped, he developed a drop time that year and he had never had a drop time before. It was only about three inches. It was a small one, but he had that drop time that year. I photographed that deer all the way until he was 13 years old. They never killed wow. that deer on the ranch. and really? so That's crazy at, old. At seven, he was 175 inches. Um, one of his coolest racks was actually his 10-year-old rack. Like I was telling you then, it wasn't way bigger. But what's cool about his 10-year-old rack is he was a mainframe 5x5. Five five. He was probably 180 inches in size. But his beams that usually swept up on the ends, that year at 10 years old swept down like drop tines. And yeah. he had like these S-curve, beams on the end of his end of his beams and made him like that was one of my favorite racks he ever grew was at 10 years old but um it wasn't bigger than his five-year-old rack he, he actually peaked out at five i think he could have you know had an even bigger rack at six but uh, everything came together at five and a half where he had the genetics he had um the the rainfall and the food to eat and um Anyway, he, he, you know, everything came together for him to grow his biggest racket five. Could he have been better at six? I think so. Could he have been better at seven? If he had the rainfall that he had at five and a half years old, I think he would have been even bigger at seven. But then after that, he was pretty much, you know, like a a five by five from there on. Um, But anyway, once an eight point, always an eight point is sometimes true. Sometimes bucks, that's all they grow is eight point racks. But you know, the ones that have the superior genetics and you're playing a numbers game. You're trying to let as many bucks go by you at one and two and three years old to try to make it to at least four or five years old so that they can express their full genetic potential. Y'all don't have the, the problems with drought up in the Midwest as badly as we do here. Y'all do have it. And you're going to have years where the deer aren't going to grow as big because they don't have as much nutrition. The corn isn't as nutritious. The soybeans aren't as nutritious. The forbs and browse that they eat in the woods isn't as nutritious. It's not growing as much. Um, But we deal with it a lot more here in in Texas than y'all do because we have bad droughts. that will last for 10 years. um, Sometimes Um, y'all don't have that as much. So you don't have as many bad fluctuations downward as we do. Mm -hmm. Um, But we also have fluctuations up when we get good grains or good rainfall certain years. So anyway, so y'all have a little bit, more of an advantage of not having to worry is your buck gonna like at las raices ranch is that buck gonna go from 240 down to 200 at you know seven years old because you waited on him yeah.
0: so, so we had a, a bad drought this year and it didn't really hurt the deer that bad because our bad droughts aren't nothing compared to you guys like you were saying right right Like, we still get rain, but, I mean, throughout the summer, we didn't get much rain, but our bucks, they're not hurting. This is one of the best years I can remember for anybody. Like, all the buddies I talked to, we also got giants this year on on cameras, at least. Right. Yep. Lance, man, I appreciate it. I don't want to take too much time. I actually really enjoyed this, learning more about you, because, like, some people just figure maybe you're just a photographer. You only like taking pictures of deer, but... I like hearing the other side of it, like how you got into it and uh, how you got your passion and everything you're doing. And it's just awesome, man. You're one of the best in the game and I'm going to stay looking at your photos. I love them.
1: Thank you. Well, I appreciate you having me on. I enjoyed talking to you today.
0: Yep. And um, is there if anything you want to plug? Like I know you do some certain things, like you get real close to these whitetails. So you even have your own like whitetail dreams, Buck up close like masterclass and stuff. So I don't know if you want to talk about that for a second or anything else you want to talk to. Yeah,
1: actually, um, you know, if anybody wants to follow my, you know, pages and stuff like that on Instagram, just look under Lance Kruger. Uh, It's the ad symbol Lance underscore Kruger. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn also. Just look under Lance Kruger Photography. Facebook, I'm also Lance Kruger Photography. Uh, My website is uh, Lance-Kruger.com. But you can just do a search and you can find all that on Google but um yeah as far as um what i want to you know let people know about i'm offering these uh, whitetail uh dream bucks up close it's a master class that i'm putting on and um that uh, the first one that i'm going to do is uh coming up this november right after thanksgiving uh like the 26th through the 29th and uh we, we uh, the class is full we, we're only letting six people in and basically i'm going to be teaching people how I get bucks up close to me undetected on the ground at eye level at 20 to 30 yards. And so I'm going to basically be teaching people, you know, it'd be a good class for bow hunters, but it's specifically designed for people wanting to shoot still photos and video of them. Um, but we filled that, that class up, uh, actually just last week. And, but we've, we're also, and I'm not going to, uh, let anybody know about this until tonight um, but uh, I'm going to be offering the same class at las raesces ranch uh, here in South Texas in January January 12th through the 15th and so it's a three-day class where basically you know all your lodging you stay at the lodge at the ranch and this is a heavily hunted ranch I mean they they have to be you know heavily hunted in order to manage the deer herd and so mm-hmm. they kill lots of, lots of uh, you know, quote, cull bucks uh, that aren't up to, you know, genetic standards and that kind of thing to allow, you know, room for other bucks that are, you know, have good genetic potential to grow up and have enough food and all that. They also shoot a lot of does every year to keep the buck to doe ratio correct. So um, anyway, so we're at Las Races Ranch. You're getting to stay at the lodge, all food, lodging, everything, me teaching you. And uh, there's six people. And so every person will get a, chance to sit in a blind with me for a half day and basically sit and learn in, you know, the blinds that um, basically I'm setting up and showing you how I get the photos that I shoot. And we'll have classes every every day during the middle of the day that's going to be teaching people my techniques and people ask me questions one-on-one and, you know, answer all their questions about, you know, how, what I do with deer and how I get the photos that I
0: get. Yeah. But it's not like you're just some guy who's like, Hey, I want to start a masterclass. You got 35 plus years of doing it. So you know, a thing or two, you
1: know? Yeah. I, I, I think, a thing or two, I got quite a bit uh, to pass <laughs> along. So um, anyway, so I'm, I'm going to be doing more of these in the future. Um, and uh, you know, instead of just South Texas, I'm hoping to expand it to other, other States and, you know, offer it uh, in the Midwest or, you know, South or Eastern U S and maybe out West, you know, I don't know, but um Anyway, that's what I've got going on. Also, another thing that I do is um, I've got calendars that I uh, produce every year. And um, I'm uh, needing to work on those here uh, real soon. And I'm hoping to have those ready by the end of the end of October to sometime in November. Um, and so I, I'll have those on my website where people can uh, order those. So um,
0: will those run you? Because I might have to put one in the podcast studio. They're,
1: uh, they're 30 bucks. Okay. Plus Next shipping. That'd be awesome. So, Yeah. So um, anyway, so it's on uh, super heavy duty, Uh, the heaviest cardstock paper. They make 130 pound cardstock. They're super heavy. They're not like the little flimsy calendars you get at the store. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's got 12 of my photos, educational um, captions, just like I do with my um, Instagram and Facebook posts as I try to educate in every, every post. Well, I do the same thing with my calendars, but in even a larger format and get to put more information in there. Um, it's got, you know, the best days for game activity, fishing activity, stuff like that. And, um, anyway, they're just really high end, high end type calendars with, you know, really high end type photos. And it's tough to pick cause I've got two, you know, over 2 million photos on file here in my computer of all the photos I've shot since 2007. And, um, you know, to pick out 12 out of those is really, really tough. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, I, can, I can only imagine that's awesome yeah two million so, photos that's crazy yep, yep exactly so but, well so, lance
0: thank you so much man i appreciate it a whole lot i know uh we kind of ran into some difficulties for me it slipped my mind when i was working didn't have servers but i appreciate you taking your
1: time out and uh actually getting this podcast done with me you're welcome well thanks for having me i, I enjoyed it and uh wish the best to you man take care you you too man have a great year all right you too thank you yep